Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome to the Provoke Media podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman, Editor-in-Chief. I'm here in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm very happy to be joined by Jean-Viev Hilton, who's the Head of Communications for Asia-Pacific at Lenovo. Jean-Viev, welcome to the podcast. This is the first in-person podcast that I've done in 18 months. Delighted to be here, and it feels very strange, doesn't it? It does feel strange, but it feels, it feels fun, actually, to not have to talk to someone through a screen. It can be a source of eye strain. Yeah, it can. And, and now I feel we can pick up on visual cues and all that kind of stuff that um, I think we have become used to living without, uh, which makes it for a different kind of conversation, hopefully. I'll try not to take advantage of it for the ability to interrupt each other, which is also something it's harder to do on screen. Yeah. Well, you, please feel, feel free to interrupt me whenever, whenever you, you choose to. Um, thank you for joining the podcast. I wanted to talk to you uh, about a few things, actually. I mean, first of all, I want to talk to you about your, your career. Uh, you, you joined Lenovo. Has it been two years yet? Yeah, it's been a bit over two years already. Right, okay. And before that, you were with BASF for a decade? Yeah, more than that as well. Uh, that, was, that was my first in-house job after right. being with agency my whole uh, PR, or my whole PR life or communications life. So, so. 12 years in-house. Before mm. that, you were with uh, before that, few different I was agencies. With, well, most recently with uh, Ketchum in Greater China. Right. Um, and, that, and before that, I was running my own agency for a couple of years, which mm-hmm. then later became part of Ketchum. Mm. And before that, I was with, when I first came to Hong Kong, this would have been around uh, end of 99 or 2000, um, I was working with Octagon, um, oh. Octagon Prism, which was uh, part of the IPG. Mm. Sure. Um, but that, so was, that was really the... Um, the beginning of my Hong Kong career as well. Mm-hmm. I think before that I'd been in uh, Vietnam for about about five or six years and uh, working for a small local agency there. All Rivers? Yes, um, that <laughs> was re- the one. Yes, I, I, I recall. For some reason in my contact book you're still listed under All Rivers. So well, the name actually came from, came from a very simple um, origin. My business partner's name was Duong and my Vietnamese name was Zhang, and Duan Zhang is a very, very traditional, old-fashioned way to uh, name a shop that's run by Duan and Zhang. And so it was kind of a joke, like we're just this really low-key, traditional shop, ah. um, you know, selling whatever, plastic gugaws or, <laughs> or something <laughs> like that, but, you know, doing this very strange thing. Well, it's right. a very strange and unusual thing at the time to be doing in Vietnam was uh, operate, you know, offering public relations. Yeah, that's. I mean, that is a whole different conversation. The I don't know if you've, you still follow the Vietnamese public relations market in much. A uh, little bit. I don't mm. get there. I don't get there very often, and no, obviously not in the last two years. But yeah, it's it's an interesting market. It hasn't. It's kind of been fits and starts, I think. But I think that's probably a, a conversation for another day. So you've done, um, twelve years, more than twelve years in house. More than that and, now, and, yeah. And many agencies. So, so start with the really obvious question. How do you find the, the big differences when it comes to working in-house versus working <laughs> agency side? 
Um, so one of the things that I originally went in-house to do was to make myself a better agency person. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was kind of my, my idea at the mm -hmm. time is that, well, maybe I, you know, in-house seems dreadful, and I, I never wanted to work for the, on the client side because it seemed like they were always under such pressure and it was terrible. But, but I thought after, um, this would have been in late 2007, I, I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a try and went to, went to work for BASF and found that I liked it very much mm -hmm. and unexpectedly so. So I, it was like working for my favorite client all the time mm. instead of just every, you know, so many hours per day. But probably the biggest thing I didn't even think about was that at a certain point, some time in my first couple of weeks uh, in-house, was I realized I don't have to fill in timesheets. <laughs> and it was like this enormous weight was lifted from my shoulders. I mean, of course, there's some sort of a, um, timekeeping system. You don't want to spend too much time on one business unit or another business unit. But the 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 grind of having to fill in those 15-minute or 10-minute intervals uh, was was lifted from me forever, and that was just that's something I would have a lot of trouble going back to now. Yeah, I, I, w I spent one year at an agency, and even in just that short period of time, I found timesheets were by far the worst oh, yeah. thing of all. Um, but I mean, on the other hand, uh, when you're working in an agency. Um, you are the heart of the business. You are the revenue generator of the mm. business. You are what the business does. Whereas when you are in-house, you are a function. And mm -hmm. so the business really does something else, whether it's they make chemicals or they make uh, and sell computers and sell IT services. Um, but the communications person enables that rather mm. than doing the core thing of the company. Are you perceived as a cost in-house rather than a source of value? Um, you know, the one thing about communications, uh, which is a little bit funny, is that it's not particularly expensive, mm -hmm. especially when you, which you shouldn't, but if you did, you could compare it to marketing. Marketing spends a lot of money, mm -hmm. and uh, the actual day-to-day -day spend on, of dollars on marketing is, uh, you know, so completely overwhelms communications uh, that I don't think communications is the first thing that people think, like, oh, you know, what's that big expensive thing we have to, um, to look at as a cost? Communication mm -hmm. isn't the first thing that comes to mind. I think the, adverti the advertising people have that. Mm -hmm. uh, Do you think that benefits marketing at all, that it is more expensive, and so therefore perhaps there's more yeah, of a, I think some, a, you know, that kind of perceived sometimes, value? Sometimes, um, if someone spends so much, then mm. they have to justify it to themselves and they start to believe it. Mm. So therefore, it must be worth more if I spend so much money on well, it. It's like buying a more expensive TV, isn't it? You know, yeah, I had to have that, that TV. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how has the value of communications changed over the past 18 months during the pandemic? We've run various research studies and in all of them, the in-house respondents have all said that they have never felt more valued and mm. their roles have, have, have been more important? Um, I mean, I, I must assume that it's different from company to company. Mm. Uh, but at least in the long-term experience I've had, the communications team is never more valued than when the crisis comes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, on, if I want to be a little bit cynical, you, you don't let that go to waste. You, you, know, you, use, you take, the, take the opportunity to build up the relationships with the senior management and you know, help them understand how communications works. Um, 
And for that reason, uh, I guess that would explain why a lot of the in-house people you've talked to have said um, communications has never been more valued, mm. particularly internal communications. So mm -hmm. if anything, I would say it's the internal communications function that probably is getting the biggest boost from this mm. because it is, you know, people suddenly realize like, oh, this is how, um, you know, this is really important. Let's, it may be not only a matter of, you know, celebrating the achievements of the boss, but rather this is a, a life and death matter where we have to make sure people are safe. Mm. Um, and the understand the subtleties and the art that goes into it, whereas just a couple of words and a memo can make a huge difference uh, to how people feel about the company. Mm. Yes, yeah, quite a few. There's a, there's a few interesting strands there that are worth um, exploring a little bit further. The so the perceived value as linked to um, crisis mode mm. is that a good thing for the communications function because it suggests that that. I mean, I don't want to be too reductive, but it suggests that they're only valuable when, <laughs> uh, when there's bad news around, or at least um, that they're seen as being more I don't valuable. Think so. uh, and in fact, um, the if the communications team is, uh, let's say, does it the right way, they will permanently increase their value in the eyes of the management. Mm. And uh, you know, there's nothing like um, you know being up until two a.m. in a um, in a in a boardroom eating you know, old uh, cold pizza together that creates a bond between the, um, the senior management and the communications team. And mm. that's a bond that sticks. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, don't think, I don't think that there's a negative in that. Um, mm -hmm. And it also helps the communications team afterwards, if they, if they do what they should, say, now let's look at this and see how we can make ourselves stronger and better organized for future crises. Mm. And that process, I think, is good for the whole company. Yeah, yeah, sure. Is it sustainable? Um, one of the questions that emerges is whether the communications function will remain valuable after the pandemic passes. Um, and again, I, I think this probably refers to companies where uh, maybe um, it's seen a huge, a, a huge, mm. you know, jump in how it's seen because of the pandemic. Um, is is that a valid question? Do you think? Um, I think it'll stay as long, it will remain as long as the same people are in charge. Mm -hmm. So and companies um, have, very, have a very low level of institutional memory, mm -hmm. or lower than you might expect. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the person who's been through a crisis with a communicator will value communications for life. But if then that person goes to a, nif a different role, the new, per the, you know, the new one who comes in isn't necessarily going to have that same attitude. Yeah. And that person will need to be educated anew. Mm. So in that sense, the fact that everybody had the pandemic um, might be a good thing for communications mm. until they all start retiring in a few years. Yeah, this has always been one of these things we've seen where you know, the CEO will move companies. And then before you know it, the CCO uh, has joined mm -hmm. the CEO at the new yeah. company and and often that's framed as a positive thing or that CCO really understands the CEO and is the CEO's right-hand person and so mm. on but of course the question is how does that impact the institutional communications knowledge um, in, in the corporate world in general? Well I think it often depends on what the role of the that most senior communicator is and is expected to be by the CEO. 
So there are often, I think, in a lot of companies, there are two people, one who deals with the senior management and the other one who runs the communications function. Mm. And the, when I talk about institutional knowledge, systems, processes, um, you know, how we do communications, how things are run, it's often that second person who runs that. Mm. Um, it's the first person who follows the CEO to the next job. Right, okay. Uh, and both of these, and I'm not saying either of these are better, but they're mm -hmm. different. They're different roles. Sometimes it's in a single person, mm -hmm. and when it's in that single person, and that person follows the CEO, then I think that yeah, there's a lot of um, there's going to be a lot lost at the company that remains. Mm. Yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting phenomenon, and, but you know you do wonder uh, what its impact is in in the long term. Um, well, think of it in a positive way. If that person was doing a great job at the mm -hmm. previous company, they're bringing all that knowledge and wealth of expertise to the next company. Yeah, no question. What, what are the changes you've seen? Um, you, I mean, obviously you work at Lenovo, uh, which is a, a technically a Chinese company. Is a Chinese company? Um, is technically, it's listed in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that Lenovo is actually, it's unique in its being, I mean, Lenovo, I think it's the, one, the world's one true multinational. We have mm. four big business groups. The four heads of the business groups live on four different continents. Mm. Um, you know, the CFO is here, the head of legal is in Washington, D.C., the head of the, um, the PC and uh, intelligent devices unit sits in Italy, head of the, the mobile phones group sits in Brazil. Mm. So it's, it's one of these... Uh, it's a very modern phenomenon, um, yeah. which I think, which is goes to exactly to your question, like how are things changing? This complete and like proper globalization mm. is, um, I think, going to affect communications um, in a very fundamental way. And um, I think we're seeing at companies like Lenovo, who are a little bit of ahead of the game, or a little mm -hmm. bit more, I don't want to say more advanced, but are further down that path of globalization, um, then you see it's something very different from what it was a few years ago. The whole, I have to only do an interview when the CEO is in town. Mm. Um, yeah. Or I, I remember giving advice to one of my agency team members, this would have been probably 2003, that it's always great when pitching a journalist to say that such and such an executive was flying in mm. and that it gave it some immediacy. You have to interview him now because he's only going to be in town for a couple days. Yeah. Um, can't, can't do that anymore. That's all, that's all changed. It's out now. the window. And of course, in the virtual world that we're living in now, mm -hmm. you could argue that that makes things even more globalized or, or differently exactly, yeah. globalized. But it also has, I think, an enormous um, advantage as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, we at Lenovo, we have a couple of people, um, well, actually a, a big team of people, like, I think like a lot of multinationals do, who are really top experts in one really interesting, cool thing. Mm. But there's only one of them. Um, like uh, the head of the product diversity office. Mm -hmm. um, so she's the one who checks whether all the, you know, the products can be used by, um, for example, people with disabilities or uh, you know, does the AI recognize your face uh, mm. no matter what color you are? That yeah. kind of stuff. Sure. Um, and uh, so that office is getting bigger, but like right now there's only one head of that office. Mm. So do we have to wait for her to fly around the world to do an interview? Mm. Um, no. We actually did a couple of interviews with her not too long in India, not mm -hmm. too long ago in India, all by, you know, using Teams, using uh, Zoom. And uh, 
it was a topic of great interest to the Indian media, mm. and um, I think everybody was happy with the results, uh, mm. including the journalist, including um, the product diversity head. Mm. And we would have had to, we made, you know, in the past we might never have even considered her, because I don't think she would have traveled all that much anyway. Right. It's, it, I think with a company like Lenovo, as you've described, you're probably a little bit ahead of the curve. Um, mm. With many of the other MNCs we see, it is still quite directed from HQ, and that's often North America. So presumably it does require some kind of a mindset change. I think so, yeah. Um, the, but, but being directed from HQ versus um, to what extent can you uh, take advantage of the global globalization are not necessarily the same question. So. Mm. Um, if I were an enlightened person from headquarters, I might be ruling with an iron fist, but still saying like, okay, you in Japan interview this person from, uh, you know, from Italy, mm. and you know, you in Korea interview this person from Brazil. I, I could be doing that no matter where I was located, mm. but uh, but I think that's a different question. Mm. Um, yep. So, yeah, I think so I think ultimately, it's the the mindset does have to change. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to change sort of everywhere simultaneously because on one hand you need the, um, the local communications team to think this is possible and mm -hmm. be able to pitch uh, to the journalist, for example, mm -hmm. um, and how to you know, put it into their plan um, as, as one option. And on the other hand, you need spokespeople from wherever who are willing to, um, who are willing to open their minds a little bit and talk to someone from a completely different market and um, you know get their get out of their whatever their home country is mm. so that's one question if we, if we look at the other question do yeah. you think that for example um, it's better for for big MNCs to have a more decentralized approach to communications um, so we often talk about this what is the role of the uh, either the global or the regional communications person. And um, I used to describe it as being uh, half consultant, half police officer. <laughs> so, uh, and then that, that would be maybe the Asia-Pacific person, and then the global would set the policy, so they would be the, the government, so, <laughs> so to speak. So the, the, global, the global team um, should provide service to the, uh, to the local and regional markets, um, but also set the policy. Mm -hmm. and having yep. those policies in place I think is very important because it gives um, it gives everyone a common understanding and a common framework and it makes things easier not mm -hmm. always having to second guess and question every single step of the way so you just want to get stuff done mm -hmm. um, whereas the maybe the regional communications uh, team should act as the consultant the facilitator the coordinator and the, yes to a certain extent the policy enforcer um, for all of the uh, the local markets, mm. so that the local markets can create their strategies, get the resources they need um, from the regional or the global team, mm. and know that they are safely operating within something mm. that won't, you know, is not going to cause trouble. Mm. How do you find it when it when you're um, staffing up those local markets? Have you seen a change in, for example, the quality of talent that's available? Um, people that want to work in comms, people that want to work in comms for Lenovo? Certainly, uh, I mean, I, I happen to be recruiting in India right now. Mm. And one of the biggest changes I've seen in that market, for example, is how many people I'm getting, um, as how many applicants I'm getting who have 
experience not only working for a local agency or for a local office, um, but working in global roles in India for an Indian company. Mm. And um, that's, been, that's been really cool mm. because it means I have people who, who are understanding both sides of the, the um, both sides of the situation. Like I, I've always thought that it makes me a better Asia Pacific communicator for having been in Vietnam mm-hmm. and been like on the last receiving end of the, you know, of the, the cascade of information that is like, oh, these guys from Global again, or these guys from Asia Pacific again. So ha- having been in that situation, it helps me a lot to understand as an Asia Pacific communicator what are the needs of the local market. Mm. But on the other hand, if I have someone in India who's going to be doing for example, an India communications job, why it's fantastic if they've had experience in a regional or a global role because they'll also understand the, the other way around. Mm. So that's quite a big shift. That's a no huge doubt. shift. Yeah. I, and I didn't see that even 10 years ago. I didn't see that. Mm. So that suggests that the, the, the quality of talent has, has improved. Are you seeing any um, specific impact from the pandemic in terms of people wanting to leave or people um, rethinking their careers? If anything, there's probably an increased level of burnout because mm. it's been so hard and it's been so relentless. Um, and you know, being in the technology industry, we were we actually had a funny kind of a funny situation is that the industry is booming, mm. and uh, you know we we're we're having a, the trouble of like supplying all the demand, which is a great problem to have. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas other companies, let's say aviation or hospitality hit in a completely different way. So they have the stress of an extended um, crisis, plus the company isn't doing very well. And mm-hmm. that level of burnout, I think, must be very, very tough. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly I've, I've seen, there doesn't, I think people haven't been firing their communicators because they need them. Mm-hmm. But you know, being that one who's having to oversee layoffs, that's, I think, that's, that's a tough. really tough job. And it's emotionally draining. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like there's an easy solution to this. I don't think so. Um, and I think the other thing with uh, working from home means that um, everybody uh, who used to be able to handle their work-life balance can't anymore. Mm. Yes, indeed. Um, I want to switch tracks for a second because you spoke at our uh, Asia Pacific conference um, around three weeks ago, I think. Yes, great event, by um, the way. Thank you very much. Uh, it was great to be back in person. Mm. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, but you said something, well, you said a lot of interesting things, but one thing in particular that stuck with me, uh, we were talking about the role of the, the communications head as the conscience mm. of an organization. And this is a sort of a popular theme or trope. Right. You know, it's the kind of thing that they love at the Page Society because it's like <laughs> a higher calling for communications. Um, but you pointed out that, pa- that potentially that perception is, is, is gendered in a way that isn't necessarily helpful. I wondered if you could just perhaps explain that to our listeners. Um, Well, I guess the thing is, yes, uh, we all love to think we are the virtuous ones with the higher calling who are the, Mm -hmm. you know, acting as the, um, the, what is representing what is good and right and true. I think every one of us would love to love to think that about ourselves. Um, But when it goes from a voluntary thing to an expectation, then I think that's where the we have to be a little bit careful. Mm. And um, if the CEO thinks I don't have to think about ethics, that's the communications person's job to remind mm. me. Um, that is definitely no good for for mm. anybody. 
And um, as I mentioned during the conference, uh, it is potentially, not in every case, but it is potentially there, you can see this through a gender lens mm -hmm. um, because, you know, uh, the women are the ones who will keep us upright and virtuous while mm. the barbarian men can go out and do as they like, you know, pillaging the, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, uh, pillaging the land. And that's not doing anybody any good. Um, and it creates a, a very strange, there's a very strange dynamic there mm -hmm. sometimes. So I would, I would rather think of the um, communications people as having it in their, you know, in their sort of secret job description, but not in their um, overt job description. Right. Yeah. And, but, and in the sense that the communications people to a, a greater or lesser extent, they represent you know, the voice of the outside or the inside world to the CEO. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe the, um, the investor relations represent the voice of the investors. Uh, the communications team, you know, marketing maybe or sales represents the voice of the customers. The communications team represents the voice of, kind of society mm. and the employees. Yep. And in that sense, yes, that is kind of a conscience. You can put it that way. Mm. It, it sounds like this is something you have experienced before where perhaps you felt um, that maybe in a room of men, um, you, 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 you've been expected to kind of be, be the person with the, with the sort of moral viewpoint. Um, I've certainly experienced being the only woman in a room of men mm -hmm. um, who are all more senior than me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that it was obvious that uh, you know, I, was the, I was the one who was bringing the, you know, the moral framework. Um, that's more of a, let's say, a general societal or philosophical observation. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think it's something we need to watch out for. Yeah. Uh, because there, there are a lot of times that um, you know, all of our unconscious biases, uh, and again, everybody's got them, mm. can create expectations of the other people who are in the room with, you're, you're in the room with that uh, you, each, you don't even think about until maybe someone points it out to you years later. Yeah. I think it's a, a really good point and, and actually a really important one. Um, and not one that I've seen made before. So I think that uh, hopefully it's something that um, communicators like yourselves and, and, and the industry in general um, takes on board. Another area where we see um, communications perhaps um, embracing you know, more responsibility, let's say, mm. uh, is around sustainability. Mm. Um, do you think it always makes sense for, for sustainability and communications roles to go hand in hand? Because that seems to be a trend we're seeing more of, particularly uh, as the kind of ESG agenda mm. becomes more and more popular. Um, well, I am always very reluctant to say that communications and sustainability should be um, merged or that one person should be in charge of both. And one of the reasons is that then sustainability risks being thought of as only a thing we talk about right, rather yeah. than a thing we do. Mm -hmm. um, so sustainability uh, or ESG or to use the old-fashioned terms, corporate responsibility, mm -hmm. uh, in my mind should be something more like a philosophy of the business or a guiding set of guiding principles of the business which is seen in every single part of the business. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, let's, let's take, you know, just drilling down on one particular area, let's say diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. um, is one part of sustainability. It shouldn't be done only by the diversity and inclusion department. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so like I mentioned a minute ago, the, uh, so the product diversity um, lead uh, is someone who ensures that the products um, mm -hmm. and the solutions are uh, inclusive enough. Um, you know, maybe the HR team has to look at it from, you know, a, a training um, mm -hmm. training point of view, but also the recruitment team has to look at it from a from a talent acquisition point of view, and the um, you now maybe the investors have to the investor relations team has to look at it from a you know investor point of view, and yes, the communications team has to look at it from a communications point of view. For example, do I um, do I use a stock photo that I send out mm -hmm. with my press release? Um, and in that photo, do I show, <laughs> do I show, you know, dad with his laptop, and you know, mom washing dishes? Mm. Um, so each part of each, each and every person in the team has to do their own bit and mm. do their own, their own uh, effort. So for that reason, I hesitate to say the sustainability should be combined with communications automatically. Mm. Nevertheless, I see it's happening a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, I. I think it works in some cases, and it really depends on the company. Mm. And I think it, it's it's a little bit, um, it opens a door potentially for sustainability to be seen only, you know, well, it opens the door for greenwashing. Right. And uh, which I think is, a, it's a very dangerous door to have open. Yeah. And, and ESG washing, we, we talked about mm -hmm. that at the conference, that that is a real thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and of course, with DE and I, we see um, mm -hmm. a lot of talk, a lot of rhetoric. Yeah. Um, sometimes not as much action. I mean, in 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 the comms world, we see quite a lot of that because this isn't an industry with a great record, mm -hmm. and yet it can have such a huge impact on DE and I. Well, I mean, the I guess that's that's what I'm talking about. The responsibility within that sphere of influence, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, do I? <laughs> yeah. Do I make sure um, that I use the power of communications to promote solutions that help the customers achieve their own sustainability goals? Absolutely, that is that is my responsibility um, as part of the overall sustainability uh, actions of my department. Um, do I help write the ESG report in such a way that it actually addresses the needs of the stakeholders? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it's not a confusing jumble of, uh, of terminology and, and um, you know, and long tables with numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But is communications department the only one responsible for it? Absolutely not. Should, be, mm -hmm. should not be. Yeah. And how do you feel about the industry's record in terms of DE and I, particularly looking at, at things here in Asia. It, it seems to me like on the in-house side, things are a lot better mm. than on the agency side. I don't know if it's that simple. Um, I think that if you, if you look at it uh, positively, um, then in your typical agency, uh, you know, like 90% of the account executives are female. Mm. And then by the time you get to the, say, managing director of uh, an agency, then it's like 50% are female. Mm -hmm. So um, when I say positively, like we have managing directors who are 50% female, that's, mm -hmm. look, that's pretty good. Um, and so we do have, uh, for example, female role models in management. Mm -hmm. um, we have, uh, you know, boardrooms in which there is not only, you know, one gender represented. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, that's a lot of attrition. Mm -hmm. And can we, do we need to account for that only by, um, in, only in terms of, like, oh yeah, the women just want to quit and have babies, and I don't think so. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I think it's all of the, 
all of the societal um, forces act on the communications industry just as they do mm. on every other industry. Um, but having, having said that, is it better in Asia? I don't know, because I haven't worked in the United States, for example. Mm. Um, but uh, certainly, I, I seem to see just as many um, male and female um, communications heads inside, uh, well, in agencies and in, and in house as well. Mm. I mean, you probably see this in your position, because um, you, you talk to them every day. Well, interestingly, we are, we've got some data coming out this week on the pay gap and promotion gap mm. at agencies only right. in Asia. And, and so we can compare it to uh, North America, for example. But it's difficult to compare. You can't really come up with a global yeah. kind of thing. But you can compare regions. Certainly. Mm -hmm. And so we will, we will do that. Um, and that, that will be interesting. But well, we haven't been able to do that for the in-house side. There's maybe one, one thing that, um, one anecdote I would like to bring up. It's a few years ago, I was, uh, and it's, it's, I guess I wanted to identify that there is still a gap, and it's mm. maybe not the one you'd expect. Mm -hmm. um, and a few years ago, I was organizing a conference for IABC, mm -hmm. and um, I was in charge of recruiting the speakers. And I opened up the whole, um, I opened up the field, I sent, I think, about 20 invitations. And out of those 20 invitations, I think 15 of them were um, to women and five to men. Mm -hmm. and. For the first um, for the first fifteen, um, I got no responses at first, mm -hmm. and then after a little while, they trickled in. Um, a few people said they couldn't do it because of the date. Uh, one person said that she didn't think she was qualified. Mm -hmm. Another one said that she thought I should ask her boss rather than her, who was a man. Um, guess what? All five of the guys said yes immediately. <laughs> yeah. And I've often wondered, is that what was the cause behind that? And uh, it's something that we need to think about in terms of giving women who are communicators more visibility at every level, um, mm -hmm. because there is that dynamic happening, whether we, you know, whether we like it or not, this is exists. It imposter syndrome that uh, that that perhaps is is has has a, a, a gender aspect to it as well. Mm. I think we're going to get kicked out of this room, unfortunately. Um, um, but that's, that's the challenge of uh, the real world. Uh, <laughs> I know. That, uh, this wouldn't have happened on Zoom. This would not happen on <laughs> Zoom, exactly. jean Vio, thank you so much for your time. We'll do this again because I feel like we, we probably have more things and we can talk about. Uh, but yeah, I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, uh, very much so. I'm looking yeah. forward to speaking again. Thank you. been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com. <laughs>